Welcome to the Professional Technical Interviewee. I'm Taylor Dorsett. In my six-year career in technical recruiting, I realized that just about every company does technical interviews differently. Many very good senior engineers do not do well in technical interviews, despite being great developers. The only way to get better at interviewing is to practice. Many early career engineers don't really know what a technical interview is like until they're in their first one. Our goal here is to change that and shed some light on the technical interview. My guest today is Carl Hughes. He's a longtime Chicago engineer and CTO who recently started his own company, Draft, which creates its technical blog content for businesses and startups. We talk about what he looks for in a candidate and in the second half walk through his unique pair programming real world style of interviewing. I hope you enjoy. Well, hello, Carl. Uh, how are you? Hey, good, Taylor. Good to see you again. Uh, yes, thanks for thanks for being on the the show here. Really excited. Um, for anyone watching, Carl uh, Hughes, he's been a, a developer, head of engineering, CTO in the Chicagoland area for for a number of years. Um, I think previously at Packback and then the Grade Network as well. Um, also a lecturer or guest lecturer at many boot camps over the years, you know, interacting with different um, folks who had recently be- become um, a software developer coming from other industries. And then most recently, I'll let you talk about it a little bit, but um, I've started draft.dev, which seems to be doing really well and in the space of creating technical um, blogs, technical marketing content for uh, software companies. Yeah, yeah, you said it. We basically uh, write content for companies that want to reach software developers. So maybe it's tutorials showing how to use their product or um, uh, articles that, that sort of educate the community about why their their sort of tool is important or something. Um, and yeah, it's going well. It's an, it's an interesting departure and change from engineering, uh, which I've been doing for a long time. But it's also kind of fun to flex a different side of my brain. I've always enjoyed writing on the side, and so now doing it full-time and managing other writers and hiring writers has been a, uh, a fun, welcome change of pace from, from my old career. <laughs> sure. It, it kind of plays into this theme that we touched on at some times in the, the show here of part of the, the software development world is, is kind of being able to adapt and being able to change at any given moment. Right. And you see a lot of people, you know, they start as software developers and engineer in some way, shape or form, but then they move in other things, right? Be it product, be it um, some type of testing or even management, right? Which can really be totally a separate thing from actual software development, You're managing people all day, right? Um, and I think actually yeah. it comes to mind is you wrote an incredible article a number of years ago um, about, and maybe you can summarize it better, but kind of the seven different or like 20 different careers you can have within software development, yeah, that's right. Um, I, I kind of, as I was making this career transition, I started thinking and looking uh, to other people who had made similar transitions out of just the, the uh, strict software engineering discipline and into other spaces. And so, for example, I knew people who had gone from software engineer to data scientist or um, software engineer to kind of DevOps uh, system administrator type roles or software engineer to product or software engineer to developer relations or whatever. So there's just lots of different pathways that you can kind of branch off of at software development. I think this is one thing I tell a lot of bootcamp graduates. It's like, even if you come out of this bootcamp and you 
get your, you know, you, you technically might be able to get your first software engineering job. Don't let that limit you. Like, don't realize that, oh, well, now I got software, you know, I spent all this money getting a software engineering boot camp. you know, I graduated from there. Like, that doesn't mean you have to stay a software engineer. There's lots of well-paying, interesting, different jobs out there for people with technical skills. So uh, I, I just, I think it's, um, it's one of those things that there's nothing in your, your <laughs> there's nothing that says you can't either go back to software engineering at some point, because a lot of those skills are going to stick around, even if, you know, you have to learn the newest languages, um, or that you can't just kind of branch off into something completely different. Um, so anyway, I like people, I like to encourage people with a combination of skills, like go use them, try them and, and do things in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I think especially folks who are getting into the, the software world, um, it's something that I think a lot of boot camps harp on a lot, which is like bring your other skills into this world, right? Like you're not just an early career software developer. You are someone who, you know, maybe knows how to work with clients through um, being a recruiter in the past, right? Or an account executive or someone who knows how to, to write, right? Which is obviously a very valuable skill. Someone who knows how to um, just work with the team well, because you're maybe more of a people person, right? Like that's all stuff that um, is immediately relevant, but also as your career continues to grow, I think those skills become even more important, right? Like I think once you're past just the the standard kind of mid-level software developer where your tasks are a little bit more heads down sometimes and you actually have to interact more, I think those skills become more and more valuable. The way I think about it is it's a, it's a uniqueness thing rather than, you know, a lot of, uh, one of the best career sort of uh, strengths you can have is being unique in that you're not easily replaceable by another software engineer or another junior developer or another um, mid-level manager. Like all those things, like there are a lot of people in line waiting to get your job to some extent. Now, uh, you know, it's not cutthroat necessarily. And yeah, there's more demand than supply at this point. But like, let's say that 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 shifts in the future. Like, do you want to be one of a million Java developers or do you want to be the Java developer who also writes and speaks at conferences or does like some product management on the side? Like there's a lot of ways you can sort of build this skill set that is really hard for other developers to replicate. So I think about skills, like stacking your skills is like making it harder for any, it's like your, your, your moat as they call it in startups. It's like your barrier for other people to come take your job and do better than you. Like, because they can't match those weird combinations of skills that you have. So think about it that way when you think about developing other skills. And, and like you said, even bringing past industry experience can be helpful. Like say you've worked in something like sports for a while in your, uh, in your past career, and then you go into software development. Now you've got a background in sports, knowing what sports, like whatever it is management or actual playing sports is like, plus software engineering. And very few software engineers have that deep knowledge of the sports industry. So you're going to come in with like this unfair advantage against other developers who maybe don't have that. Yeah, that's really interesting. The uniqueness factor. Um, that's something I, I haven't really thought about. It, what's come to mind is, you know, recruiting companies that are in the software space. I've always thought, oh, what could I bring to that, right? As someone who's been kind of on both sides now. Um, and I think, you know, everyone has some version of that, right? That you come in with that that experience. So, uh, well, obviously the, the show's about technical interviewing and, and um, that process and kind of what you do. And I know, obviously, later we're going to do... Um, your version of, of doing a technical interview, which I've, as I was doing my research, I saw on your LinkedIn page, you've, I think you've had several people um, talk about how great or how much they enjoyed interviewing with you, right? So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, but I'm always curious, you know, at this point in your career, have you done technical interviews within the last, 
you know, a handful of years, um, either, you know, doing an actual technical or have you um, interviewed people uh, for your team recently? Yeah, I've given, I've given a lot in the last few years. I have not um, been on the receiving end of many in the last few years. Um, you know, it's a, another, uh, another way to get un, an unfair advantage in your career is to build a really strong network. And it's one of the easiest ways to skip parts of the job interview that are really annoying and suck. Um, and that's kind of how I've gotten my last several jobs is just knowing the right people at the right times when they need to hire someone. And I was a good fit. And, you know, what actually what another trick to skipping these technical interviews is doing uh, like being a contractor or freelancer with the people first, because if you can, if you can come in as a contractor, they pay you to do a certain project. They go, they know what you're like working with. They know you can get your stuff done. They know you can, um, you know, stay on task. Like they know you can work in their code base. You've de-risked yourself immensely compared to the, the random off the street applicant. Now, I know that's not a, an easy thing for everybody to do because you may have a full-time job. It may be hard to move to another full-time job while contracting on the side. Like that may not be realistic, but just another sort of cheat code to getting past some of these interviews that can be, they can be kind of arbitrary gatekeeping uh, like opportunities for the company. I mean, I have a, the reason my uh, methods for technical interviewing are different is because I, I, I don't like the conventional approach personally. Um, now, I, I know there's plenty of engineering managers who, who disagree fully with me. So we have spirited debates on this and I don't mind debating. But um, yeah, I take a different approach because I think that the traditional approach misses a lot of good people who would otherwise be in like, they get put in these high pressure situations that are not anything like the real job. And it is not no one enjoys it. It's not fun. It feels like the uh, the interviewer is the smart one and the interviewee is the dumb one. And there's this constant like power struggle there that I don't love. So anyway, I have a different approach, but uh, that's that's kind of my kind of my justification. Yeah, that's a a great point of um, de-risking, right? And I think about um, hiring often. The part that a lot of people that aren't on the hiring end, right, don't necessarily think about is like when an employer is making that decision to, to hire an individual, it really is, um, it's a pretty big, big decision, right? Like there's huge ton of factors in place apart from just, you know, what a salary might be. It's also, what would this look like if this person comes on board and isn't a good fit? Right. And then um, as as someone has had, um, or who's hired people and realized that it wasn't a great um, decision and then had to let those people go within a fairly short amount of time. Like that's, that can be devastating <laughs> to team morale, right? Uh, yes. Um, yeah. And really uh, difficult I've done for it the next and, hire. <laughs> you try to make exactly. it. Go- and it makes, totally. Like you have to think about your, the hiring manager who's looking at your application and trying to, putting you through all these hoops to get you into their process. Like they are trying to not look bad to their boss because if they look bad to their boss because they hire some dunce, they are... Uh, not going to stay in their role for long or they're not going to move up the way they want to, right? So you, it's it's funny, like a lot of applicants don't put themselves in the shoe of the employer and think like, because they probably haven't been in that, that role where they're interviewing and hiring, but like the employer is just as scared of hiring you as you are scared of them, you know, evaluating, evaluating uh, you. So uh, in a way there's, you can kind of, uh, 
I don't want to say you want to use that fear, but you want to understand that fear so that you can de-risk yourself. That's why I say like every employer and every hiring manager is trying to de-risk every candidate. And that is usually through asking certain rigorous questions in the, and then doing whiteboarding interviews and things like that, because that is the standard accepted practice for de-risking candidates. Uh, but if you can get around that by doing like the freelance thing or having known the person before and worked with them before, there's all sorts of little like shortcuts to de-risk yourself without going through the same hoops that all the other applicants go through. So, uh, you know, this doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work at every company. Some companies are very rigid. They don't have any opportunity to do this. I've always been working with smaller startups. And so it was always about like, can I de-risk myself to the founder, to the whoever's in charge of engineering now, so that they bring me bring me on at whatever terms make sense for both of us? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and there's there's so many ways to do that too if you start thinking about it right. And I think it's all the um, the standard things that people are talking about is like projects and making sure your resume looks nice and um, having that networker being referred in. Those are all like just little pieces of de-risking. If there's no typos yes. on your resume. Just, even that alone, you seem less risky than someone who's got a handful of typos Absolutely. and it goes, I don't know, what are their emails to clients going to look like, right? Uh, whether that's a yeah. fair assessment or not, that's something that certainly goes oh. into the, the thought process. How, how prompt you respond to things, how good your references are, how uh, you know, polished your portfolio is. Like examples of things I've seen, like um, software engineer who you know had like a portfolio site that just didn't work at the time. And I'm sure, you know, honest mistake, I'm sure it's, he broke it in the last build, right? Like whatever, it happens to all of us. But like that immediately puts this little like, you know, question mark in my mind. Like, do they know that that's not working or are they like oblivious like that? That's a problem. Or are they like, you know, was an honest mistake that happened last night. I just happened to check it when it's not working, you know, like, yeah, it, it, there's so many things there. And again, like that is not alone going to knock you out of contention, but it puts a doubt in the employer's mind. And so you have to like think I'm thinking about my job and my boss. What is my boss going to think if I bring in the guy who portfolio site didn't even work, you know, like, does that make me look like an idiot? Like, it kind of does. So you know, all these little things go up the chain. You have to be really careful about it. Yeah. So um, knowing that this obviously isn't a perfect process, right? And there's lots of risk involved. What, what are you typically <laughs> yeah. evaluating for when you're interviewing for, you know, your team now, I think is a little different, right? If you're interviewing for writers, um, yeah. but that may be interesting. Yeah. Assuming you're still looking for some aspect of software engineering knowledge. And then in the past as well, I guess, right. what were you evaluating for, for, uh, you know, your typical engineer? Yeah. So I've always, well, not always, a few years ago, I learned to create rubrics for hiring. Um, so rubric from an academic standpoint is a like kind of a grid matrix of like skills on the, uh, the first column will be skills that the person needs to have. And then the other columns will be the, the uh, uh, what do we want to call this? Like the level of that skill. So for example, communications is a critical skill for engineers. So a engineer with low communication skills, they answer emails briefly without any detail. Their English is um, difficult to understand at times. Uh, they are uh, maybe not prompt with responding to things. They are, um, unable to explain their decisions that they make, things like that. And then we go up from there. It's like they start to check boxes and they start to get to higher levels on the skills. So what I do for each hire is I create a one of these rubrics that says, these are the five or six things I care most about in this hire. So it's things like communication, reliability, uh, aptitude at learning. I, I actually, and like, do they already know certain skills? Like, do they already know front end? Do they already know back end? Things like that. Uh, and then like, a lot of times we end up having something like 
attitude or like uh, how well they're going to sort of uh, fit with our, uh, I, I hate the like culture fit idea, but like if they, I, I'm big on hiring people with positive attitudes. I just don't hire cynics. Um, and so uh, that's always a, a factor. Like a, there's just, I don't want to work with them. I, that's fun. Like this is my personal preference. And like the thing, the thing about it is like hiring is a two-way match. I could get some great, technical person who knows how to solve all our technical problems. But if they have like this, they're, they're gritty to work with. Like if they're going to bring the rest of the team's morale down, I just like, fine, I'll let them go. Like somebody else can have them, you know, the, let, let the big company that, that wants to pay them more anyway, have them. Um, so anyway, that's, that's my personal preference because I like to pick the people I work with based on people I want to hang out, like be with and work with. And, you know, a lot of that transfers over to what we do at draft. Um, it's, uh, we're hiring people who are software engineers in their day job and want to write on the side. And so for people like, and we're hiring them all very part-time, but we still have a rubric that we look at each candidate for each person who applies for, and we, we evaluate them against that. And then we continually evaluate them against that rubric over time as they submit work and as they prove themselves to be better or worse than we initially thought. And that's the same process I went through with engineers. Yeah. I mean, from a company standpoint, I think that's hugely helpful when it comes down to hiring, especially if you're getting past, I guess it's really critical early on, right? Because otherwise, like, what are you evaluating on um, other than just kind of feel right? Um, And then I think also really critical if you hit any type of growth stage, right, where you're hiring XX maybe even X number of engineers in a certain period of time. Um, I think I've told this story before, but a, a client of mine in the past, um, it's a big freight tech company. They were evaluating um, a senior engineer uh, and I was on the call, you know, going through the debrief with them and um, it was kind of back and forth, but essentially it came down to the CTO looked around the room and said, great, here's our definition of a senior engineer, right? According to our, our rubric, he goes, um, listed off four or five things. He goes, does this person meet that? And then everyone around us said, yes. And then he goes, great. Then let's make him an offer. And then he walked out of the room and like, I still remember that as like a very clear, like, okay, here's our bar. Otherwise we're just kind of going back and forth over little things. Right. And it just sticks out as like yeah. such a, a perfect that way to, to figure it out. Right. Yeah. That's perfect. I mean, that, that is like, because so many hiring managers hire off of gut feel. And mm-hmm. it, it, this is really frustrating as a, if you're a candidate, it's really frustrating. Uh, you may not even really know why it's frustrating. Like you may, you know, when you ask questions like, what are you looking for in this hire? They, they probably give a different answer to every person that they, they interview because they don't have it written down and like actually codified. And that's a huge, I mean, this is a huge problem in hiring in general. It's just the non-standardization and like not the, the unwillingness to kind of build a like, a robust process. But like when I think about it from an engineering leadership standpoint, I want to be able to make this rubric so that when in five years I'm hiring the next level of middle managers, I can give them that rubric. And I say, every hire you make needs to be on this. And if you want to adjust the rubric, fine, let's do that. But like, it isn't going to be just random feelings about like what you liked about it. Cause it's so easy to like people who are terrible at their jobs. Like yeah. they could be great on the phone, you know, like that doesn't mean they're good at what we need. Anyway, so yes, definitely repeatable is good. Um, And honestly, I think this is one of the things that can should evaluate companies on, you know, like at some point the power, the, the power flips where, you know, early on in your career, sure, you, you just want any job you can get, that's fine. But at some point you're going to have enough experience and enough 
uh, gravitas or whatever knowledge that you can kind of pick your job. And so at that point, you need to start asking questions like this, like, how do, how do they hire people? Because the people, the way they hire you is the way they hire everybody. So if everybody was based on gut feel and just the manager who they liked, you're going to get this just awful assortment of people with varying work ethics and varying abilities. And it's not going to make any sense or like be fun to work with them. So like be, you know, be proactive about asking about these sorts of processes and see if companies actually do them or if they're just, you know, seat of their pants. It's actually shocking to me as someone who, you know, worked with uh, different sizes of companies in the past. It seemed very consistently it was right after an IPO or like an acquisition was when a company decided, oh, we got to figure this out. Um, and, and a lot of times it was more so an internal rubric because they have people who are just, they're used to promoting people based off of being, you know, you've been a software engineer level two for the last two years. Well, now you're level three, right? Um, because yep. nothing went wrong, right? Uh, and that it was yep. always interesting <laughs> to me. Um, I guess I'm curious, would you share that rubric with candidates or maybe not yeah. their specific rubric, but like their results, but basically this is what we're, we're grading on? Yeah. So I, you're right. Exactly. Like, here's the thing. If you're going to tell people, like you're going to go through this performance exercise, I think you should tell them what you're being graded on upfront. That's sort of like, if you were taking a test, you'd want to know how it was graded and what it was, what mattered. Um, and so the way I do it is in the job description, I always have bullet points for each of the things we're looking for in a little explanation. So it might be, you know, communication, do you communicate promptly? Yada, 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 yada. And like, so, if they choose, to, I mean, and honestly, this is another problem with, with a, the application process is like a lot of candidates don't read applications because they're applying for hundreds and hundreds of things at once. And so instead of reading and actually looking at those bullet points and thinking they mean something, they usually gloss over them because honestly, for a lot of jobs, they don't mean anything because the company isn't really that intentional with their hiring. But if you see somebody who's sort of in a job description, taking the time to say, this is what matters for this role, like I would encourage you to think about that, you know, is that something I want to showcase? <laughs> like, how can I showcase that? Um, so that's what I always did was put it in the, into the interview. I didn't say like in so many words, like these are the four things I'm looking for exactly. It was more like, you know, we expect candidates who come through this, they're most successful to have yada, yada, yada. So it, it's there. It's just, you got to look for it. Sure. I, I tell people all the time is like, use the recruiters as much as possible or use your point of contact um, as much as possible. Cause like, I, I've said this um, where it's, you want the study, um, the study, uh, the practice guide, right? Before you take the exam, right? And a lot of times you're going into yes. an interview blind and it's like taking a test on all of history, right? Like that, that's a really broad <laughs> subject. Um, but if you get a study guide, this is we're just doing World War II and just these years specifically and this region. Okay, great. I, I can study that. Right. But all of history, I'm probably not going to do well on that. <laughs> right. Right. No, absolutely. I think that's one of the, I mean, partly this is on the employers to be more like specific about what they look like, what the process is like. I think that would be helpful because in real life, like we don't take an engineering job and then your boss comes to you on the first day and says, all right, surprise, this is what you're doing. Like there's so much more, like you get trained, like you get built into the thing and then you slowly introduce yourself to the code base. Yet for interviews, they come in, it's like, surprise, surprise, here's your whiteboard question you've never seen before. Like, I just don't understand. This is not one-to-one -one equivalent. Like, we're testing people on something completely different. Like, we're testing them on their ability to quickly evaluate a project in 30 minutes and complete it, rather than the, the like, actual thoughtful, like, integration part of engineering, which is so much more important. Anyway, I, I, I'm not going to get on that tangent more, but, like, I just I think it's 
it's just something we need to think about as a, uh, you know, industry as a whole. Yeah, I agree. I think many job seekers who <laughs> found themselves in a situation where they're <laughs> asked to solve a problem they have no frame of reference for would agree as well. So um, I'm, I'm curious, and this is something that I think is always interesting to talk to people who aren't necessarily um, as hands-on anymore or haven't gone through technical interviews recently, but how do you think how do you feel in the past um, you performed the technical interviews? Was it something that you enjoyed and you're like, Oh, I was really good at them or, you know, middle of the road or maybe poor. Like it's, it's always interesting to hear. Yeah. Um, it's varied because they are very, like they are, they're not all the same, right? Like um, I wouldn't do well in a, like a whiteboard style interview. I've never done well in those and I've never probably will um, because I typically, like if I'm solving a problem, I'm pretty pragmatic in my approach. And so in other words, I like look at what's already been done and I'll more or less like copy that first unless I have a good reason to deviate. And whiteboarding is all about like you're coming up with an original solution on the fly from memory. And so I'm just not, I don't feel like that's something that matters to my software engineering career. Uh, so I don't do it. But, um, you know, obviously- oh, wait, like, give me one second, uh, sorry. Okay, we're back. I, I, I'd be curious to see if that comes up on the, <laughs> on the recording or not. That the, I, I thought it was setting on fire or something. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Okay. Well, technical, um, technical difficulties over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, sorry, you were saying uh, whiteboarding. Uh, you know, it's something like just that type of interviewing where you're going up on a whiteboard yeah. is not necessarily something that I've never done. Yeah. I've never done well at those. Um, but then on the other hand, like the take home projects where you're supposed to build something in a reasonable amount of time that is like going to complete a task. I do tend to do well in those because I like building little side projects. So I've always building stuff from scratch is hard for some engineers who've worked in like a large code base for a long time. But for me, I've always had like these small projects where I could spin up something really quick. So it's, it's funny too. Like, we think about companies that give these take-home projects where they're like, uh, you know, build a tool that does X and Y in two days and whatever. It's like for an engineer who's worked in a large existing code base for many, many years, they may be a great software engineer, but never have set up like all this from scratch. And so you're testing them on something that is A, not something they've done and B, probably not something they're going to do at your company. Like it's just, it, it, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a little bit... Like it's just off again. And so these are not, I don't think they're great tests, even though I do like that style personally better than the, the live whiteboarding. Sure. It's always interesting to me how much of interviewing seems to be like, build this thing from scratch when so rarely is the job ever build so, this thing from yes. scratch with no reference, right? If you're building something <laughs> new, a lot of times it's, hey, this is going to be similar to that other project we did, right? Go take yes. probably 30% of that code. And then, you know, a lot of it, you can just kind of parse like, how do we do that over there? And then you, okay, we can customize it a little bit like that. That is almost a more valuable skill um, than, you know, just being yeah. able to build something from scratch just because of how, how rare. I mean, maybe if you're a consulting company, you're, you're building something like that every month. But I think the vast yeah. majority of people are, are not, right? Yeah, like at least 75% of software engineering and probably more in most organizations is like updating existing code. It's just so rare that we're doing brand new greenfield development because it's just not needed in most cases. And so 
the the thing one of the skills I think is way under tested for is getting into an existing code base and trying to learn it well enough to like be uh, useful in it within a reasonable amount of time. And that's one of the reasons that the style of interview I do is like what I do because it tests on like, I'm going to give you something ahead of time. You're going to see how well you can go research it on your own and then come to the table with some knowledge. And then we're going to work on it together. And how quickly do you pick it up when I start to explain and help you through things? Because in real life, I'm going to explain and help new hires through things. I'm not going to like throw you out on a limb and be like, good luck with this project. Like come back in six weeks. And if you don't get it right, you're out of here, you know? <laughs> so yeah. anyway, uh, that's again, like kind of goes back to the reasons for the way I do it. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice or tips for, for engineers who are in technical interviews or maybe struggle with technical interviews on, on ways to approach problems? Um, I mean, you can practice a lot of those things. So like here, here's a, a pathway that is not my pathway, but is a certainly val valid one. Let's say you want to go work at larger um, Fortune 500 type companies or the large you know, tech companies, the Facebooks, Googles, Amazons, you know, there a lot of them are going to have whiteboarding and live coding interviews. So you need to get good at that if you're going to work there. Like that's just part of the, the game that you play. So if you want to do that, you can get books like the imposter's handbook that talks a lot about some of those, the basic things that they, they would test for. There's, um, I want to say there's a couple other books that we may have to look up and send some links over, but like there are other like places also you can practice these sorts of things. Um, uh, the one I used to do some when I was thinking I would go that route was like the Euler project is what it's called. And sure. it's yeah. um, a great place to just practice some of these little like find the, all the primes between X and Y, you know, it's like stuff like that that I have never seen in real life as a software engineer, but I see in interviews pretty frequently. So like you a, have to spend the time to practice those things. That's my biggest thing. Like these are not, there is not a, for some of these, they're logical thinking exercises, but in a lot of cases, it's having seen things like it over and over again, you will get better at recognizing the patterns and doing it. So having created a Fibonacci sequence 20 times, you will get, be really good at, setting that up. And then when that comes up in an interview, you'll have no problem. You won't get stuck on the Fibonacci sequence. Yeah. Um, the Euler Euler project, um, has a pretty decent, uh, meetup in Chicago as well for any Chicago based people. Um, oh yeah. That, yeah. That would get together and solve problems. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the kind of the, the leak code grind is what folks call it now. Right. But it's, yeah. um, that is a, a system of, you know, it's kind of like going to the gym, right? Where if you do these things yes. regularly, you'll see the same types of problems and slowly you get better and better. It's just like going to the gym. It is painful right? early on where, you know, yeah, you're going to be grind, sore. Your, right? your brain's going to be sore, especially if you, you right. know, worked all day and then you're going to try to practice right. afterwards. Uh, not but, a lot. But of I know people, I know software engineers who like it and, and enjoy that, like that kind of problem solving. And if you do, that could be really great for your career because you can kind of take it. This is kind of goes back to the unfair advantages. What unfair advantage do you have? Like if you are really good and you like this leak code stuff, man, I mean, you're going to be able to go like jump to the next paying job, like high paying job every year or two, because you can go do well in those interviews and you, you're doing them in your sleep, you know, like you will look like a awesome candidate, regardless of whether you can actually do any code in real life or not. Like it almost doesn't matter because you're so good at interviewing. So I would say like, if that is your unfair advantage, use it, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's the, the company has set the game out there, know the rules and play it and you can win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, and I, 
I had uh, finding bugs framed to me in an interesting way. When I was first learning to code, like I, I would get very frustrated, right? I run into a bug and I'm like, I, it's, it's, uh, I think of it now as like the uh, versus a, oh, interesting method, right? Where like, if you're uh, all the time, um, I mean, that's the job. A lot of times is just figure out why something isn't working, right? Like you code this thing, you think it's fine and then it's just not, right? And you have to go through it. And if every time you're, you're screaming at the sky, you're going to be miserable, right? Versus the, Oh, interesting. Okay, let's figure this out. Um, and I try to take that approach now. And I think some of the, the senior engineers, I think, who enjoy the software development world take that approach more often um, when they run into to bugs that are difficult. I think you can try to frame, um, you know, that lead code grind in a similar way where it's, oh, interesting. I haven't run into something like this, or I kind of know something like this. And can I um, get that that direction? And that helps a little bit. Um, that, that helped me in the past when I was looking at, you know, grinding through through questions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, I can appreciate the like, sometimes when I, when I was doing more of those um, in the past, I appreciate the like math and theory behind some of them that, you know, I'm not a mathematician and I'm not great at that stuff, but like, I do like knowing that the world is so orderly and that numbers are so like programming can be that way too. Like, and can be helpful for those things. It, it is kind of cool, but it's, it's so funny how just different it is from actual computer programming and a day job as a software engineer, you know, it's like the, just that, 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 um, that moat of difference is what kind of blows my mind about it. You know, it's like, I just so few times in my engineering career in like real code production code, am I thinking, Fibonacci sequence would be helpful here, you know, like, uh -huh. I don't think any has that ever come up. So, <laughs> yeah, I, and you know, this is maybe the type of work I'm doing right now, but I, I think regularly in my day job, I'm just chasing data around. I'm just trying to move data around and figure out where it's going and like how to get it in the right spot. So it shows up on a page, right. Versus like, if I'm yeah. ever practicing algorithms, it doesn't feel like that at all. It's like, I just need this number to come out. Right. And what is the sequence of things I need mm -hmm. to do to, to make that happen? Which just feels like two different things, just using the same language to do it. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Now that all that said, like there are some legitimate cases. Oh, as I was say, there's just some legitimate cases where software engineers do need to know micro optimizations. And like, I met a guy a few years ago who's doing high frequency trading in C++ because they had to be as close to the bare metal as possible to make the fastest trading algorithms that worked in like, you know, micro or nanoseconds or whatever. And for him, like things like these algorithm optimizations matter. And, but like, that's, that's just exceedingly rare, especially for those of us who are just doing general web development, like you're building a React app, like this stuff is not, you know, it's not coming into play very often. You've got 14 node packages coming through that. <laughs> you don't need that or slow your website down more than <laughs> anything right. else, right? Right. Um, would yeah. you have different advice for, for early career folks? Like maybe specifically, you know, someone trying to get their first job or, you know, maybe they've had some luck, um, but they're, they're trying for that second job now that they've got a little bit more experience under their belt. Yeah. You know, it's, again, like advice doesn't transfer, like what works for me probably won't work for most other people and vice versa. So I can't tell you what, like, you know, a certain pathway, but what I will say is like, try to use the strengths and skills and things you enjoy doing to your advantage the most possible. So for example, I like networking and meeting people. And mm -hmm. to me, that is a natural part of like my weekly just practice of life. And so because of that, I've used that greatly to my advantage to get jobs that I wasn't I feel like a lot of kids, I didn't feel like I was really qualified for. I just like 
was able to, I knew some people who trusted me. And like, so building trust with people is a huge asset to have, regardless of whether it is directly related to software engineering in the, you know, the, the path that you might think about. So think about the things you're good at, think about the things you like to do and use those to your advantage. Maybe it is that past experience in other industries. Maybe it is the crossover skills of writing or um, understanding system administration that make you just more valuable in a different way than other people. Rather than you know, plugging ahead and being like, I'm gonna be the top 10% of software developers in the world. Could you be in the top 50% of developers and 50% of something else? And that gets you into this weird bracket of, very few people like have those two circles that overlap in the Venn diagram. So uh, that's my, my general advice. Like try to be unique and stand out a little bit and um, take a path that isn't necessarily conventional because uh, you, you, you don't end up competing with the same people that you would if you were taking that path that everybody else you know, is competing on. Yeah, when I worked at, at Actualize um, Coding Bootcamp in the past, that was something that, that um, I always tried to stress is while in some cases you're competing for the same job as this computer science graduate, um, in in a lot of cases you're you're really looking at different types of jobs, right? And an employer may be looking um, for you, you differently. And a lot of consulting companies actually had success hiring people that came from non-traditional backgrounds because they might just you know, if they're a couple years older going into um, the software development world, they may just have a little bit more awareness about, you know, how to interact with people versus uh, 20. I know when I came out of college at 21, I wasn't really a great, um, I really wasn't great with clients, right? There's a lot I needed to, to learn, right? Um, so that's something alone that that can bring huge value, right, for people. So um the other thing I, I think is helpful is just think of it as a learning process, right? It's like, can I learn something from this interview? That again, helped me a lot. Um, when I was, uh, you know, beating my head against the wall, trying to get my first job was okay, great. I've got this interview. Even if all I do is like, um, fail on this coding problem, can I connect with this individual and can I learn something? And even if it's halfway through the interview, I go, Hey, I'm stuck. Like, help me help me work through this right um and then it becomes more of a teaching thing and i'm probably not going to get moved on to the next round i actually had really good conversations with people and ended up in you know people that i interacted with a lot more afterwards um that i've actually made a connection with and i learned you know i learned how to do that prime number question you're talking about right because i didn't know how to do it going into right. the interview totally and you you just said something too that i always tell Candace to think about it's like don't think about the, the interview you're currently in as the end of that road like this is the beginning of your relationship with this hiring manager in this company like even if you are not right for this job and they decide that can you leave a positive impression anyway and that is I mean so impactful and helpful because I've gone back to Candace I rejected the first time around a year later and said hey you know timing might be better or you might have learned some new things or this role might be better fit for you like want to come in and try for it, you know? And so thinking about companies and your job opportunities is like, or thinking about the interview as like a chance to just get one foot and one toe in with these people and just make a good impression, regardless of whether it's you're the best technical candidate or not, um, because you're going to be growing and changing. They're going to have new roles. They may like come back to you in six months and be like, oh, well, you know, you weren't quite good for this mid-level engineer job. You weren't ready for that, but we've got this apprentice job. Or we've got this junior engineer job, or we've got this QA job. Like, something where they, if you were leaving a positive impression and stay in touch with them, you could certainly get reconsidered. And so don't, you know, don't burn any bridges through this process. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, 
told this story at Actualize a lot, but I, I didn't get hired at Actualize when I first interviewed with them. They, they hired somebody else. And, you know, I just kept in touch with Jay, the CEO, and really, you know, enjoyed that that um, connection. And then about six months later, when that other person didn't work out, he was like, hey, are you still interested? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, but it's going to cost you more this time, right? <laughs> you should have hired me the first time. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great. Well, before we move on to the, the um, you know, the interview portion, um, do you have any technical interview horror stories of, you know, being a, a candidate um, or, you know, a, an interviewee in the past that you're willing to share to, to humble yourself? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know, I had this one. Um, I, I, I guess this is, this is maybe a warning or something to look for in candidates. I, you know, the world of software engineering, especially in a big city like Chicago, is getting increasingly diverse and less of an uh, old boys club, or at least I think we're trying to get there. Uh, it's one of my personal goals to make it less of that. But anyway, so it is going that direction. But there, that said, there are still a lot of uh, engineers and lead engineers out there who are pretty misogynistic, just to be brutally honest. And so I had like an uh, experience of a few a couple years ago where I was kind of a casual meet and greet type interview. It wasn't like I was quite in the process yet, but I was like, you know, meeting the CTO and just kind of getting to know the lay of the land, the company, what they were looking for in like in, in a director of engineering, things like that. And um, he, he made some really like clearly sexist, you know, remarks. And it like, at the time, like, honestly, like looking back 10 minutes later, I was like, I should have said something. That guy was an asshole. But, but yeah, at the time I was like so shocked. And so like, what are we doing? Like, what is this that I just didn't say anything? I feel bad. I, like, you know, I, I, I still regret that to this day. I'm like, oh, I wish I could have that moment back. But, um, but yeah, it's just knowing that that kind of thing exists really made me realize it opened my eyes to the whole, like the barriers that are in place for, for people who are underrepresented in our field. And it really, it, it, you know, sort of like bothers me a lot, but it also just makes me like even more fired up to keep those doors open and make sure you're thinking about these kind of like the, the little jokes and the little things that, that you say among other guy engineers, like, so it's really, um, be very careful with that. And so that goes for candidates and hiring managers, both like alienating people because you, you know, make a joke is not a, not worthwhile in a workplace setting. Um, at least in, in not in my book, but, yeah. uh, yeah. So anyway, be careful of that kind of thing. It just because you think you're in a, I don't know, feels like a safe place to make this joke. Probably not uh, as much as you think, or you may not know what that other person is really, you know, where their values are. So watch that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, looking, I'm a bald headed bearded white man, right. And regularly in sales interviews right. in the past, I was like, I cannot believe what someone would say in front of me. And then just being like, let's, I mean, at least they said it in, in the first interview, right? So you can cut off the, the rest of the time and then can kind of make that known. Right. I think that's right. even more prevalent in the, the sales world, which um, is, yeah. you know, I guess. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, and you just think like what that, what that means is that person has some implicit or biases that they like, regardless of um, whether they're explicit about it, whether they would ever say anything to a woman that was sexist, but they clearly have something in the back of their head that yeah. is like there. And so you just have to think that person is going to treat people like that, even if they don't mean to, because it's there. I mean, this is something they're, they're on. Anyway, I, it's a, a huge red flag and something I would always like keep people, I mean, just be really, yeah, stay away from that as much as possible. 
Absolutely. I've worked places in the past where, you know, I've set up interviews for, for people that I know who are great. And, um, uh, and then after I left that company, multiple people would tell me, Oh, you know, the reason I didn't go work there was because of that person. Right. And I would, Oh, I wish I would have known that then. <laughs> right. But it makes sense. It, usually after you leave a company, right. it becomes much more apparent. Right. Um, so totally. And that's, that's one of our other tips that we always, uh, we both agreed on that I thought was kind of fun uh, is the, the backdoor interview, um, which I've always done and sounds like you've recommended to people. But uh, you know, that, the idea is instead of just going through the people you're supposed to meet for the interview, why not try to meet someone who you're not supposed to meet for the yeah. interview? At least that's the way I think of it. So I try to go like through LinkedIn and see if I can find someone who knows somebody I know or something that I can get an introduction to. And that maybe ideally they used to work there or they like work there, but in a different area and they can kind of tell me what it's like looking in from that, that space. Um, and you get some really honest and uh, mm -hmm. uh, you get the gnarly stuff, you know, you don't get the stuff that's cleaned up for uh, HR. Um, and that's really helpful. I mean, every company has got problems. It's not like I'm looking for perfection, but I do want to know the general like uh, culture that I'm stepping into. And so that's something I encourage even newer candidates, I know you're desperate for any job, but still just kind of put an eye out there and see if there's somebody you can talk to that will tell you some th things about it. Yeah, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I almost always go to, you can go on LinkedIn and see previously worked at, right, at that company. And yeah. um, I've had many phone calls. Every job I've ever taken, I've, I've called someone who used to work there. And an ideal person is someone who worked there for several years and they left within the last six months, yeah. right? It's usually a little bit far enough away that they're not, if, if they were better, maybe they're not anymore. Um, but they actually have a good right. feel for what the company is like. And almost every 100% of the time, someone has said, you know, blah, 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 it's nice. Um, here's the things to watch out for. And here's this one thing, right? That like maybe isn't immediately yeah. apparent. And that one thing almost every time is rung true and probably ends up being the reason why I end up leaving as well. Right. Um, and it's yeah. something that if they've been there a couple of years, they know what you're going to go through. And usually people want to share that, right. It's pretty rare that someone will just yeah. only fluff up and say all the nice things to try to get you to go work there. Cause they don't necessarily have a vested interest anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, they sort of think they put themselves in your shoes. Like if they, they were looking for a job, they'd want honesty. They'd want the the real deal because that's what we're looking for. But yeah, it's a, it's a little bit better in my opinion than Glassdoor personally, but yeah. I don't know, there's other ways to do that too. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcasting app at the professional technical interviewee. I want to thank my guests, and my wonderful editor and producer, Dustin Bays. If you're interested in sharing your technical interview advice and being on the show, please reach out at dorsettaylordev at gmail.com. As a reminder, this interview has two parts. You can find the second half, which is the live technical interview on YouTube at The Professional Technical Interviewee. The link will be in the show notes. Until next time, keep practicing.